You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast today. Our guest is Dr. Alan Gelzo, one of the most brilliant and insightful observers of 19th century United States, particularly Abraham Lincoln in the American Civil War. He's a best-selling author, according to the New York Times. He's an historian and a commentator on public issues. He has written for the New York Times, my particular favorite, National Review, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, among many other publications. He has been a guest of Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, and C-SPAN's book notes with Brian Lamb, a rather famous Hoosier himself. Professor Gelzo is currently director of the James Madison Program Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship at Princeton University. He has written several books focusing on President Abraham Lincoln, the American Civil War, and other topics, and quite frankly, has received so many awards and accolades, I simply had to omit the litany from this introduction. But I will say he is a three-time recipient of the prestigious Lincoln Prize. Professor Gelzo is joining us today to discuss his newest work titled Robert E. Lee, A Life, which will be released in September 2021. Professor Gelzo, thank you for your time today. Robert, it's a pleasure to join you and to point out, whether you knew this or not, that I have Indiana roots. My great Give it out. My great-grandfather, who emigrated from Germany, uh, came in the 1870s to Laporte, Indiana. And that is, so to speak, the first major stopping point of the Gelzo family in America. So there is a sense in which, you know, kind of a remote sense, but I can still lay mm -hmm. claim to being a little bit of Indiana. Did Are your, are your ancestors Catholic? No, no. Some of they them They didn't were. come here? They no, didn't come so, here as a result of Bismarck's culture comp? <laughs> no, I think my great-grandfather, Wilhelm Friedrich Gelzo, came here more as a way of dodging conscription into the Imperial German <laughs> Army. <laughs> no, they were, they, were, they were Lutheran, they were Catholic, they were um, 
I, I can't predict going down the family tree, which would go in which direction. Uh, mostly it was, let's see if we can't get ourselves out of the grips of these European monarchs. Did any of your uh, forebears serve in World War One or World War Two? Oh, yes. My grandfather on my father's side uh, was a doughboy. In World War Two, my father volunteered right out of high school. Uh, he made sergeant, was never in action. All of his uh, service was stateside in supply, uh, largely because he was so nearsighted. And for that reason, he was, he was not in action in World War II. He did benefit from the GI Bill, went to the University of Pennsylvania, got involved in ROTC, and graduated with a commission and spent 20 years as an, uh, an officer in the Army, all the way from Korea to Vietnam. And we should mention your PhD is from that same University of Pennsylvania, if, if I've read my notes correctly. Your notes are correct. You might say that the Gelzos just get into these ruts and we can't get out of them. <laughs> you mentioned military service. Please talk about your son. My son, Jonathan, is a captain in the U.S. Army. Uh, he volunteered straight out of high school to join the Marines and was involved in the war in Iraq. He served two deployments in Iraq at uh, the dam at Haditha. There was a, an FOB at Haditha. Uh, he has a combat action ribbon to show for it, mm. but did his hitch with the Marines, got out, went to Westchester University, got involved, like my father, in Army ROTC, graduated with a commission, and uh, is, has now been in the Army since uh, 2012, and is right now at Fort Belvoir, uh, he is happily married to Candace, who is wonderful. I mean, I could not imagine a better daughter-in-law. And he has three beautiful children, uh, Cora, Isabel, and the youngest, who was just born in April, uh, Patrick Lincoln Russell Gelzo. <laughs> so <laughs> he has quite a name to live up to. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Thank him on behalf of the Leaders and Legends podcast for his service. I mentioned to uh, Professor Gelzo that my son uh, Joshua had served two tours in Afghanistan and that we both had three kids. And I promised not to ask him which of his three kids is his favorite. Um, I will just say that um, uh, we're both very proud of our children, of our sons for their service in combat, uh, in lands thousands of miles away. Yes. Robert E. Lee has had several distinguished biographers of various uh, levels of hageography. We always like to, we're a medieval history podcast at heart here. So when we can use terms about that, supposed to, supposed to apply to saints, we try to use them. Um, what made you join the list? What made you want to join this list of people to take a crack understanding Robert E. Lee? Curiosity. I'm not your usual Lee biographer. I'm a Yankee from Yankee land. I was raised in Pennsylvania and quite literally at my grandmother's knee, I heard all of her stories about how I was a schoolgirl in Philadelphia at the turn of the last century on decoration day. That's what they call Memorial day. Then the old veterans of the union army 
in their little blue jackets and little blue hats as the Grand Army of the Republic, they would come to her school and they would talk to the students there about the real meaning of the Civil War. And when they talked about the real meaning, they meant not what those traitorous rebels have been trying to make it out to be as the lost cause. Oh, no, no. No, these old veterans of the Union Army had the Union story to tell. That was what my grandmother learned. And that was what she talked to me and dinned into my head when I was not even school age yet. And over the years, what I've written about the Civil War has had a very strong component of Lincoln to it. I've written books about Lincoln. And when I've taught about the Civil War, I've told people, frankly, I come at this subject from the viewpoint of people who believe that the Union War was the righteous cause. And yet, curiosity, curiosity, Robert. I was curious, first of all, to look at this subject to which I've devoted so much time and attention through the other end of the telescope. What did the Civil War look like from this very different perspective? And and I feel that the difference in perspective... For many years, I taught at Gettysburg College, which is only seven miles from the Mason-Dixon line. And I always had this very Mm -hmm. clear sense that every time I headed south, I crossed the the state line, went through Maryland into Virginia. The further south I went, the further I could feel almost palpably that I was breathing a different atmosphere, even 150 years later. So curiosity, what did the Civil War and what did Robert E. Lee look like? from this other perspective. I was curious. The other curiosity was this. How do you write the biography of someone who commits treason? Now, I I use that word carefully because many people would rise up in righteous indignation that I would dare to apply the word treason to Robert E. Lee. And yet, I have no other word that I can use when I look at Lee in terms of the Constitution and the laws. Here's a man who raised his hand against the United States. Here's a man who had sworn an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. The same oath my grandfather, my father, my son has taken. Same oath that I took when I was serving as a member of the National Council uh, for the Humanities. And he went back on that. And not only that, but waged a war against the United States, the Constitution, the flag he had otherwise pledged to serve, and and a war on behalf of human enslavement. How do you write the biography of someone like that? I mean, in some senses, it's easy to write about Abraham Lincoln. You can admire Lincoln and, and do so almost without hesitation. You can write, if we want to be medieval about this, you can, you can write about Charlemagne and, and write almost with a sense of, of admiration or about Augustine or about Thomas Aquinas. Truth be told, you could even write about Duns Scotus without lead or hindrance and still feel that you're doing something that is not terribly radical. But Lee, how do you write the biography of someone who commits a crime like treason. I was curious, how do you do that kind of thing? That is what I would call difficult biography. So I'll put put quotes around that. That's difficult. How do you do difficult 
biography. So many of his early biographers were a part of the lost cause, or at least, um, let's say, influenced by it. I remember reading Clifford Dowdy's book years ago, and he's a fervent admirer. Obviously, you have Douglas Southall Freeman, who was probably the definitive uh, maker of, of Lee's 20th century reputation. But scholarship has changed. And before we started the actual taping of the podcast, I mentioned Thomas Connolly's The Marble Man and the brilliant Hoosier historian, Alan Nolan's Lee Considered. Connolly's book was published in the 70s, I think maybe 77, and Nolan was in the 90s, maybe 91. And they took a, a pretty significant sledgehammer to uh, Lee's reputation as this reluctant, brilliant warrior who just basically wanted everyone to get along. Um, how did you factor in their scholarship, this revisionist scholarship, into your thinking and your writing? Well, it's curious as you mentioned Connolly, because Tom Connolly's Marble Man was actually the first book about Lee that I ever read. I was still an undergraduate when the book came out. I bought the book once again, mostly out of curiosity, and was really quite mesmerized by its argument because it is an argumentative book, no question about it. Uh, Connolly was on a crusade, and the crusade was really of two parts. The crusade was, first of all, to challenge the dominance of Douglas Southall Freeman's four volumes on Robert E. Lee. Uh, Freeman's Lee is almost the Himalayas of Lee biography. Uh, Freeman had, as the editor of a Richmond newspaper, a ready staff of research assistants. He conducted, or at least had his staff conduct, enormous amounts of research into Lee's life. And the four volumes that he produced, and for which he won the Pulitzer Prize, represent a formidable obstacle to anybody who decides that they, would too, would like to write about Robert E. Lee. Uh, you have so much that is packed into Freeman's four volumes that it almost seems like it's difficult to think of anything new that could be said about Lee. But on the other hand, Freeman also unapologetically painted Lee as a saint. He very nearly canonized. I, at, the, at the close of the last volume, there's, there's almost a hint of deification. It's like King Arthur going off to the Isle of Avalon. So, so there, there are people who would look at that and they might be tempted to challenge the fairy tale picture of Lee that is created in, in Southall Freeman's four volumes, but getting over that enormous mountain range of research, that's a challenge. Connolly went after that. Connolly did not so much plumb the depths of new Lee research as he challenged an interpretation of Robert E. Lee. It was not, by the way, the sainthood interpretation so much as it was Connolly's objection to Lee as the symbol of the South's civil war being fought entirely in Virginia. Connolly had established his reputation as a historian, as the historian of the Confederate West, especially as the historian of the Confederacy's ill-fated Western army, the Army of Tennessee. And he developed a real burr under his saddle by so many other historians, even Confederate historians, 
who regarded the war in the West, the war on the other side of the Appalachians, as almost a sideshow, and that the real war was being fought by Robert E. Lee in Virginia. He almost developed a personal antagonism to the reputation of Lee. That's a picture, of course, which it plays a very important role in Freeman's biography. So Connolly principally goes after this idea that Robert E. Lee is the great military genius of the Confederacy because he fights the only civil war worth fighting, the one in Virginia. Oh, no, no, says Connolly. The real war is being won or lost on the other side of the Appalachians. Lee not only is conducting a secondary operation, but he's not even conducting it all that well. And it's from there that Connolly goes on to question the sainthood aspects that Freeman celebrated, suggesting that not only was Lee not only unimportant in the overall scheme of the Civil War and the defense of the Confederacy, but that Lee really wasn't all that admirable a character. They had a number of character deficits and that these should come to the fore in any kind of estimate of Lee. Now, that really became Tom Connolly's uh, crusade, a crusade which in 1981 he took a step further with by publishing a slim volume of essays called God and General Longstreet. Well, it's no surprise that someone who would be that critical of Lee would find himself having at least a few good things to say on the subject of James Longstreet. And so he does. So Connolly had quite an animus against Lee, but it was an animus that you might almost call a a friendly in-house Confederate animus. It's one kind of Confederacy versus another kind of Confederacy. Alan Nolan was different. Alan Nolan had made his first great uh, uh, splash in Civil War history by writing a marvelous book about the Army of the Potomac's Iron Brigade, still a great book in Civil War literature. But he was also an attorney, and especially a civil rights attorney. So he turned his hand to writing about Lee in 1991, very much from the point of view of a northerner, of an emancipationist, criticizing a man who fought in defense of slavery. And his book, Lee Considered, and he gave it that title because as far as he was concerned, neither Connolly nor Freeman nor Dowdy or any of the other early biographers of Lee had ever genuinely considered genuinely considered Robert E. Lee from the aspect of the moral question of slavery. That was how Alan Nolan wanted to interpret Robert E. Lee. And it was a scathing version of Lee that emerged from the pages of Alan Nolan's book. Between the rock and the hard place of Connolly and Nolan, it's been very difficult for Robert E. Lee's reputation to have survived without a good deal of battering. And yet, and yet, even to this day, Robert E. Lee still manages to stand very high in the estimate of many people, and not just Civil War historians. As Ulysses S. Grant's reputation has risen, Lee's has somewhat receded. Yes, and that's a, that's that's a very interesting thing. Yes. For decades, it was the inverse. Lee was the nobleman and, and Grant was the drunk, most famously parodied on an episode of Beverly Hillbillies as Granny is ready to man the ramparts again. 
must it but grant was lee's victorious rival does this kind of inverse relationship have to exist well certainly in the case of ulysses grant the man has come a long way in terms of reputation Uh, he was in by 1869 one of the most famous if not the most famous man in america he had actually enjoyed a success story that almost eclipsed that of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, we think of Abraham Lincoln, born in a log cabin, rises to become president. Well, Ulysses Grant washes out of the army from alcoholism. The outbreak of the Civil War in 1861, he is clerking in his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois. Eight years later, he's president of the United States. <laughs> there's, there's I, nothing, I there to, is absolutely I, nothing like that in American history. I used to give speeches to Civil War roundtables, uh, and my, the speech I gave was on the relationship between Lincoln and Grant and how they won the war. And I think one of the one of the stats I used was, I think it's 1859. In 1859, Grant has to pawn his gold watch to buy Christmas presents for his kids. Five years later, he's the first merit lieutenant general since George Washington, only yes. in America. Only in America. The problem is that Grant's reputation hits that peak when he's elected president, and then it starts to slide. It slides through his presidency. It slides afterwards. By the time that people start taking these famous presidential polls, I think the first one of them was done by Arthur Schlesinger. In in the 60s. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Grant is somewhere near the bottom of the heap in terms of uh, people's perceptions of him and historians' perceptions of him. But now here's the curious thing, Robert. Grant has done nothing but move up ever since. And the most recent C-SPAN presidential poll that was done this past year uh, pegged Grant at number 20. That's the highest he's reached, but that's still pretty considerable when you consider where he's come from. Uh, Douglas Brinkley made the comment, that Grant is having his Hamilton moment. Mm, great point. And, and I think I think this is true. I think the, the estimate of Grant's presidency has done a significant turnaround, and for the better, and I think justifiably so. And that's reflected in perceptions. With Lee, you're right. If anything, uh, while Grant has gone up, Lee's reputation has, has slid uh, by considerable lengths. Well, that's the power of history and historians in some ways. Look what uh, David McCullough did for Harry Truman. And for John Adams. And for John Adams. (laughs) I was just going to say that's absolutely right. Uh, Please explain uh, briefly, because it's a gigantic topic, but uh, to our listeners, uh, the existence of what's been called the Lee cult and its relationship to the larger sort of lost cause theory of the Confederacy. The Lee cult is an unusual creation since Lee himself did not have much of a hand in it. Lee, in the years after the war, did his very best to discourage anything that could be called a cult. Uh, He, unlike Grant, did not, in the post-war years, gather his former officers around him. Grant did this as president. He, uh, He appointed a number of his former staffers to important roles in the Grant administration. When Lee becomes president of Washington College in 1865, he does nothing of that sort. He never calls his former officers to Lexington, Virginia, to 
have reunions. He doesn't participate in reunions himself. He discourages people from putting up monuments to the Confederacy. His insistence uh, is pretty routinely. Uh, We lost the war. We have to come to terms with that. We're now one nation again. And Southerners are going to have to rebuild themselves as part of that nation. It's after Lee's death that a Lee cult is formed. And it's formed. The attacks on Longstreet begin. And the attacks on Longstreet. Exactly. Uh, The Lee cult forms as kind of a subset of the lost cause. The lost cause insisted in the most general sense that the Confederacy had waged its war for righteous reasons, never about slavery. Lost cause wanted to deny up and down that the Confederacy was ever about the defense and perpetuation of slavery, which I have to say was not true. This is why the lost cause is a myth. But from there, the lost cause went on to insist that the Confederacy never really lost the war because the whole game had been rigged from the start. The North had all the advantages. The North had lots of soldiers. The North had lots of supplies. The North had lots of weapons. All that the Confederacy had were poor, ragged farm boys uh, with shotguns and eating raw corn out of the fields. And uh, they, they lost, but... Their loss, their loss was not because of them. They were simply ground down by the attrition of Yankee capitalism. And they should be celebrated for the fact that they held off those Yankee capitalists for so long, for four long years. Well, that's the general background of the lost cause. Mm-hmm. That lost cause, though, needs a King Arthur. And exactly. Robert E. Lee became the King Arthur. And Lee is celebrated as the distinguished cavalier who brilliantly outfoxes the Union armies and Union commanders one by one, year by year, until finally he and his dwindling band of heroes is cornered at Appomattox Courthouse and compelled to surrender to, of course, that undistinguished person named Ulysses Grant. This is a cult about Lee. It is a myth about Lee. It is a myth about the lost cause. And wasn't it in some ways propagated by some of the most loathsome and unsuccessful members of the Confederate military? I'm looking at you, Jubal Early. Well, Jubal Early was one of the principal formulators of the Lee cult and with it, the lost cause. And it's, not without reason to suggest that some of it was an effort to draw attention away from Jubal Early's own less than stellar career as a Confederate general. After all, he's the one who botches Lee's attempt to distract attention away from Grant's siege of Richmond uh, by leading his army into two smashing defeats at the hand of Phil Sheridan. I mean, two years before, Stonewall Jackson in the same places in the Shenandoah Valley, had won great victories that palsied the hand of George McClellan. Uh, Jubal Early turns out to be no Stonewall Jackson. And, <laughs> and, and, and Early, of course, would prefer that people forget about the defeats he was responsible for. One person that becomes his, uh, his the object of his particular animus, of course, is James Longstreet, partly because Longstreet, after the war, concludes that, well, this war was lost, 
and we should accommodate ourselves to the victors. And Longstreet joins the Republican Party. All right, that was sin number one. Sin number two was to actually publicly criticize Robert E. Lee, especially mm -hmm. at Gettysburg. This was a gift to Jubal Early, because Early could, on the one hand, set up Lee as King Arthur, and on the other hand, set up James Longstreet as Mordred, as the mm -hmm. evil traitor who should be denounced, which Early does often and without intermission. And Longstreet, we should say, was, I believe, from Georgia. So he wasn't part of the Virginia dynasty, that sort of uh, mentality. And I think Longstreet, wasn't he also a best man at Ulysses S. Grant's wedding? Well, he did have a He married a cousin. He married he, Julia Dent as his cousin. He did have a, a, a close connection to Grant. And what's more, he is willing to criticize Robert E. Lee and to do it to Yankee investigators. Really, the first place where this is published is in a long footnote in William Swinton's History of the Army of the Potomac. Mm -hmm. The idea that Longstreet would not only criticize Lee, but do it in a book that is a history of a Union army. The Union army, Lee devoted most of his attention to fighting, uh, was for someone like Jubal Early, considered to be little less than treason to the Confederacy Although how you could be a traitor to something that no longer existed, well, that's another question. But for Jubal Early, that was another story. The irony here, and there's another thing that Early would have preferred that people not inquired into, was that right up until Virginia's secession from the Union, Jubal Early had been an ardent Unionist. He had been part of the Virginia Secession Convention and argued vehemently against seceding from the Union and joining the Confederacy. And that was something else that Early would have preferred that people forgot. He could devote that kind of energy to diverting attention from himself by pointing energetically to the sainthood of Robert E. Lee. And, and I forget who summed it up. It might have been it might have been Piston in his book on Longstreet or maybe Jeffrey Ward or some other Civil War historian who said Longstreet's greatest crime was arguing with Robert E. Lee over Gettysburg and being right. <laughs> well, I have my doubt, and I'm here going to introduce a footnote. I have some doubt as to whether the great quarrel that is supposed to have occurred between Lee and Longstreet over July 2nd and July 3rd, 1863, I have some skepticism as to how that actually occurred or if it occurred in the degree that it did. A great deal of what we know as this disagreement, you know, Longstreet, Longstreet either not pursuing Lee's orders with sufficient energy on July 2nd or counseling Lee not to launch the great attack we know as Pickett's Charge on July 3rd. Either of those tend to be confections of the post-war years. And I have the strong sense that as the war faded into the distance, Longstreet remembered more and more of how much he had disagreed with Lee. I have some doubt as to whether that disagreement was really all that clear at that moment in 1863. I think it got clearer the more Longstreet remembered it. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Professor Alan Gelzo, who not only wrote a very well-received prize-winning book on Gettysburg, which 
I hate to say, I think is overrated. Sorry, professor. Your book is amazing. The battle itself. I've had this discussion with other civil war historians. In my view, Shiloh is the most important battle of the war. I can uh, see why you brought, I can see why you brought Tom Connolly up then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was lucky enough to talk about it with uh, several, uh, three or four historians who've come on, uh, and and to me, uh, what comes out of Shiloh has a better, has a more dispositive impact on the ending of the war than what comes out of Gettysburg. And I'd love to have you on again just to talk about that. But Professor Gelzo is on today to talk about his new biography of Robert E. Lee called Robert E. Lee, A Life, which will be released this month in September. We talked about it for just a second. You could do hours on it because I've read about it. I still get confused. Uh, Your book does as good a job as any as trying to untangle uh, views on uh, Robert E. Lee's views on slavery and you wrote an article and it had this incredibly smart sentence and i want to read the sentence that you wrote in an article that you did for national review quote like many upper south whites lee was practiced in looking at slavery and then looking away how do you tackle lee's attitudes and views which appeared somewhat to be all over the place um, when it comes to his moral pullings versus his economic sort of anxiety? Well, anxiety may be the key word in trying to find a key to unlock all the complicated doors of Robert E. Lee's views and Robert E. Lee's character. Robert E. Lee is not an easy person to write about, and that for for several reasons. One is that He's not what you would call a gifted writer. He, he's not the kind of person who is very good at self-examination and self-explanation. The longest essay he ever writes is actually a biographical foreword to a reprint of his father's memoir of service in the American Revolution. His father was Light Horse Harry Lee, the famous cavalry commander of uh, the Revolution. That's the longest thing he ever actually composes in his life. When he does write, self-revelation is not his long suit. That's one problem. Another problem is that he did write a lot. Oh, he was a compulsive letter writer. My estimate is that Robert E. Lee in his lifetime probably wrote somewhere between 6,000 and 8,000 personal letters. Now this, by the way, comes from a man who professed to hate professional army paperwork. He couldn't stand it, but he devoted outsize amounts of attention to writing personal correspondence. And one of the difficulties of this personal correspondence is that it's scattered all over the place. But we today have the advantage, for instance, if you're writing about Abraham Lincoln, You can very easily access Lincoln's writings through the collected works of Abraham Lincoln, the eight volumes edited by Roy Basler in the 1950s. Or you can access the collected writings of Ulysses Grant in John Simon. Yeah, I believe it's 26 volumes, uh, which is recently completed uh, with the energies of John Marzalak. Uh, For many years, it had been the great project of the wonderful John Y. Simon. 
you can easily ac- access what Grant has to say, what Grant has to write. It's all there in those covers. The papers of Jefferson Davis are easily accessible. The papers of Andrew Johnson are easily accessible that way. Robert E. Lee? No, no. Robert E. Lee's personal correspondence is scattered often in penny packets all the way from the Morgan Library in New York City to the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. And and at multiple points in between, there's a collection of letters uh, in Georgia. There's a collection of letters in Missouri. uh, There's a collection of letters in Texas. um, There's a fairly large clump of Lee correspondence uh, at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The long and short of it is one of the principal obstacles in getting at Lee is that it's so hard to try to get all this correspondence together and to take its measure. So between Lee's, the shield that Lee tends to put in front of himself personally and the sheer volume of what he writes and tracking it all down, that discourages potential biography. I mean, I mean, it's no wonder that there has been no full-scale, big, huge biography really since Freeman's four volumes in the 1930s. And there have been single volumes, and the best single volume, Lee, I would have to say, is Emery Thomas's biography of Lee from 1995. But when you think about it, we're 26 years on from Emory Thomas's biography, and there really have not been a lot of efforts in between um, that are that are worth taking as biographies of Lee. And I think a principal reason for it is getting at the Lee material is so hard, and when you do get at it, it can be so unyielding. I had a friend who would often ask me as I was in the process of this book, and this, this book really consumed seven years. I was asked by this friend, have you figured him out yet? <laughs> and I, for years, I would have to say, nope, not yet, not yet, not yet. It took a long time to parse out what I thought were the, the drivers in Lydia's character. And Robert, I think they finally come down to three fundamental things. One has to do with his unhappy family relationship. His father, the famous Lighthorse Harry, deserted the boy when he was six years old. Light Horse Harry was a great cavalry commander in the revolution, but he was a total loss as a family man, as a father, and above all, as a manager of his family's money and property. And he takes off for the West Indies a couple of steps ahead of his creditors, and Robert never sees him again. The loss of a parent before adolescence is one of the most traumatic events that a child can experience. You don't recover from that, at least not very easily. And seeing that in Lee made me understand why Lee drove so often for perfection. He was a perfectionist. He judged people very harshly. One of his closest staffers, Walter Taylor, said, in a letter that he wrote to his fiancée. Working for General Lee is so difficult. He's so unappreciative. He's so critical. Now, yet at the same time, Taylor could admire Lee, but yet he also saw in Lee this, this, this drive for perfectionism. But there's also a drive in Lee for independence, 
what Lee really wants is to be his own man. He doesn't want to be judged as the son of his father because there's an element of disgrace in that. And it's strange to say, but the young Lee was looked upon askance by many people because of his father's shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his future father-in-law, uh, George Washington Park Custis, was hesitant to give his approval to Lee's marriage to his daughter, Mary, precisely because the Lees had this reputation. And it was a reputation largely based on Light Horse Harry. So what Robert E. Lee seeks after, secondly, is independence. And the third thing he wants is security, because security, of course, is what he never had in terms of the abusive childhood that he had to endure. Those three things, the search after perfection, the search after independence, the search after security, those are the three drivers of Lee's life. And the problem is that the three of them are not always compatible. You can have independence, but someone who is independent is not always terribly secure. Someone who is secure is often not terribly independent. And perfectionism often exacerbates the dilemma posed by both of those. It's really, curiously enough, it is not until the last five years of his life, when he's the president of Washington College, that Robert E. Lee really gets all three lined up together the way he wants them. And I actually think those last five years of his life may well have been the happiest years that he ever spent. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, the podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar Gear. Our guest today is Professor Alan Gelzo, New York Times best-selling historian, and recently the latest biographer of Robert E. Lee. He will publish Robert E. Lee, excuse me, A Life in September 2021. Talking a little bit about, about the war. In your view, could Lee have stood aside from the conflict? Easily. Easily. Lee marries into one of the most famous families in America. He marries the daughter of George Washington Park Custis. Custis is the step-grandson of George Washington. And Washington, as we know, marries Martha Dandridge Custis. And from her first marriage, uh, which ended with the death of John Park Custis, from her first marriage, she has two children. And the older of those children, Jackie Custis, uh, marries Eleanor Calvert. And George Washington Park Custis is the son of that marriage. So he's the, he is the step-grandson of George Washington. From the Custis side of the family, he inherits, and also some from the Washington side, uh, he inherits a considerable property. He actually has three properties, one, two of them on the Pamunkey River in Virginia. And the third of them, this great mansion that he builds on the Potomac River, right across from the new national capital, which he names Arlington. 
Now, today, when we talk about Arlington, we think naturally of Arlington Cemetery, the most famous of American military cemeteries. And that's, of course, the place where the grave of the tomb of the unknown soldier is located. But that was originally the Custis estate. Robert E. Lee marries the only child of George Washington Park Custis. And he could very easily, with the outbreak of the Civil War, he could very easily have said, a pox on both their houses. I can't serve the Union because, look, I'm over here on the Virginia side of the river and I owe something to Virginia. So I won't raise my hand against Virginia. But on the other hand, I have been a serving officer of the United States Army for 30 years. And I'm not going to raise my hand against the United States or the United States Army either. So I'm going to resign my commission. I'm going to sit the war out as a neutral. He would not have been the only one to do that. There were a number of high-ranking Southern officers in the United States Army who, faced with this dilemma, would not go with the Confederacy, yet did not feel that they could raise their hand against their own kith and kin, and who set out the war as neutrals. And Lee could quite conceivably have done that. He doesn't. He doesn't. And that is really one of the most perplexing moments in Lee's life. Why does he decide, literally speaking, to go south? I think a great deal of it is wrapped up in Arlington itself. And the story here is a story about mistrust. The story is a story about inheritance. The story is the story about misplaced love. Robert E. Lee marries into the Custis family. Arlington becomes his technical home, but he never owns Arlington. When his father-in-law dies in 1857, he cuts Robert E. Lee out of the will completely. The Arlington property is not willed to Lee or his wife. It's willed to Lee's oldest son, George Washington Custis Lee. Talk about a vote of no confidence. So what Lee does, Lee Lee will live at Arlington because his wife has a life interest in the property, but Lee does not own Arlington. Yet he has to preserve it for the benefit of his oldest son and really for the rest of his, uh, of his, of his children. So here's the dilemma he's presented with in 1861 on the cusp of the civil war. Let us suppose that Lee is offered as he was command of the union armies. If he accepts that command and Virginia secedes from the union, what will Virginia do? Virginia will seize Arlington. Partly as revenge, but also partly because Arlington is a strategic height overlooking the national capital. You put some artillery up there on Arlington and they can bombard the Capitol building without any difficulty whatsoever. So if he chooses for the Union, then he loses Arlington, loses it for himself, loses it for his children. On the other hand, if he decides to go for the Confederacy, If he agrees to serve Virginia, he'll preserve Arlington, and there very likely may be no war. I mean, remember, in April of 1861, nobody 
envisaged the kind of war that actually did ensue. And in April of 1861, people were still talking about this business about secession just being a big kerfluffle. And once everyone had calmed down over Fort Sumter mm-hmm. and Southern secession further south, once everybody calmed down, everyone would get back together and they would reconstruct the Union. That was where the term reconstruction, by the way, first comes into play. They would reconstruct the Union and everything would be put back together again and things would go on peaceably once more. Lee had every reason to expect that was the case. And I think there's more than a little evidence that Lee saw his decision to go to Richmond and receive command of the Virginia state forces as a peacemaker gesture. He would go to Richmond and he would play the role of peace broker. And thus, do even better than his forebear by marriage, George Washington, Washington is the father of his country. Robert E. Lee could be the savior and reuniter of his country. And with all of those motives in the air, the comments he makes about how he can't deprive his children of their property. I think that in large measure is what drives Lee into the arms of the Confederacy. It's not out of love of secession all through the war. He's Mm -hmm. very critical of secession and secessionists. He's very dubious about that. And it's not out of love of slavery. As early as 1862, he's nagging Jefferson Davis. The Confederacy needs to emancipate its slaves. We're not doing ourselves any favors in terms of our foreign policy or our diplomacy by holding on to slavery. We need to emancipate the slaves. By 1865, we need men. We need soldiers. Well, even beyond that, by 1865, he's actually saying, let's recruit. Let's emancipate slaves and recruit them for the Confederate army which you know, this is treated by hardcore Confederates uh, as, as being little less than blasphemy. The, the Charleston Mercury, when the Charleston Mercury heard about, about Lee's advocacy of emancipating and enlisting slaves, they erupted. They said, well, this just shows us that the Lee family is just a bunch of unrepentant Federalists, and we've never trusted Robert E. Lee from the start of the war. Oh, my. (laughs) Professor Gelzo, do you want to quote Hal Cobb or do you want me to? Oh, you go ahead and quote Hal Cobb because that's it's classic. Hal Cobb, who I think was a senator at the time or he'd been Confederate secretary of state. He'd been a Confederate general. Now he's yes, he's in the Confederate Senate. And he was told of the uh, and you correct me if I don't get this quote exactly right. But when told of the idea of arming uh, slaves freed or current to be soldiers in the confederate army how cobb famously said if the slaves will make good soldiers our entire theory of slavery is wrong yes and for once in his life how cobb got things right <laughs> the curious thing is that that lee would probably have said yes to that proposition we ha- we do have our theory wrong back in the 1850s and when i say that lee is not a person who unveils himself very much in his correspondence. In the 1850s, he does raise the curtain a little. And for the first time, he starts talking politics. And he starts talking about slavery as what he calls a moral and political evil in any country. You read that and you think, my goodness, this is Robert E. Lee. Now, at the same time, Lee will immediately turn the coin and say, Abolitionist propaganda is only making things worse. 
we we will get rid of slavery, but it's going to have to happen over a long process. It's going to have to happen in God's good time. And overall, we have to say that slavery has been a benefit because it took all these poor slaves out of uh, Africa and it brought them to the United States and it Christianized them and civilized them. So you know, slave, we have to let this work out on its own. This is what I meant when I said that Lee is always looking at slavery and looking away. He knows it's wrong. He knows in his gut that it's an evil. But knowing it and doing something about it is an entirely different proposition. And it was the same dilemma you find in Southerner after Southerner after Southerner after Southerner. Oh, yes, there were hardcore Confederate fanatics whose white supremacy was something that they sat down and gobbled at the breakfast table. But there were many other Southerners, especially across the Upper South, where the hold of slavery had been slipping for decades. Many other Southerners were caught on the horns of this. They knew that slavery was wrong, but they could not somehow bring themselves to the point of deciding what they should do about it, if anything. And that's where Lee is. So he embarks on a career defending an institution, slavery, which he doesn't really have a whole lot of confidence in. One of his slaves at Arlington, and I say his slaves, he didn't really own them. They were the property of the Custis family. Lee actually only ever owned one slave family in his life, and that was a family inherited from his mother. But one slave who was his personal valet at Arlington, in the course of the war, ups and leaves Arlington, goes across the river to Washington where he can be free. He's interviewed there, and he creates a sensation when he tells people, oh, I, I was the personal valet of Robert E. Lee. And they say, you were? He says, yeah, let me tell you about General Lee. He once said that he wished I could be free, that he wished everybody could be free. So you start calculating this and you see that Robert E. Lee is a most unenthusiastic Confederate in terms of the defense of slavery. Moreover, even on the road to Appomattox, I mean, all through the, all through the war, Lee is constantly saying, Southerners are not sufficiently committed to this war effort to win it. Southerners don't have the gumption. They're not willing to make the sacrifices. The Confederate Congress is doing it all wrong. He complains to his son that the members of the Confederate Congress do nothing but eat peanuts and, and chew tobacco. And on the road to Appomattox, he says to William Nelson Pendleton, this is how I knew it would always turn out. And at that point, you think, why did he do it in the first place? And I have to wonder sometimes if that question came to his mind as well. And yet, he has such an extraordinary unwillingness to challenge civilian political authority. Remember, here's a career soldier. That the moment in the spring of 1865, the early spring, this is February of 1865, when Robert E. Lee could have stepped forward and said, look, we're going to have to enter into negotiations and those negotiations are going to mean sacrifices. We're going to have to sacrifice slavery. We're going to have to go back into the union, but we've got to stop this war. If Robert E. Lee had stood up and said that, people would have listened. And yet when he goes to Virginia Senator Robert M.T. Hunter, 
This is Confederate Senate. Mm -hmm. Right. He goes like Nicodemus by night to Hunter. And he explains all this to Hunter. And Hunter says to him, well, what do you want me to do about it? Well, Lee says, you're a member of the Confederate Senate. Stand up and tell them this. And Hunter says, look, I'm only Robert Hunter. You're Robert E. Lee. They'll listen if you do it. Lee says, I can't. I'm a soldier. I have to do what I'm told by the, the government authorities. At that point, you want to throw your hands in the air and say, is there, is there no point at which you can find the gumption to get up and speak for yourself and say what needs to be said? And he just didn't do that. And if there is a failing in Robert E. Lee that I find anywhere in his career, it is that failing to see what should be done, but seeing, look away from that seeing. All Confederate, well, Union too, all Confederate deaths after the re-election of Lincoln in November of 64 seemed to be murder to me. You had no military path to victory. By then, you had no diplomatic path to victory. You had a political path to victory, which was just snuffed out uh, overwhelmingly in Lincoln's uh, victory over George McClellan in 1864. And whatever sympathies, small s, you would have with Confederate not their goals or aims, but their way of thinking, their path to victory, their strategic uh, map to try to win this war. After November of 64, that is all gone. And so all of them should be condemned to the highest degree, in my view, uh, for continuing that war for months and months after Lincoln's victory, which by then they knew they had no chance. You know, people often ask me, what do you think was the turning point of the Civil War? And I suppose some people might say Shiloh <laughs> or, some, or, or some people might say Chattanooga uh, or they might say the fall of Atlanta or they might say Gettysburg or they might say Antietam. When I'm asked that question, a little puckish temptation enters into me and I tell them turning point of the Civil War was Appomattox Courthouse. <laughs> and the reason I say that is that really, almost up until the very end, and in this case, November of 1864, when Lincoln is reelected, it could very easily have gone the other way. Even, even in the, the late summer of 64, when the Confederacy has sustained so much damage and so much territory has been lost, if Lincoln had not won re-election, if George McClellan had instead been elected, then the outcome of the Civil War would, I am afraid, have been entirely different. Because McClellan, as Lincoln made very clear, McClellan would have been elected on such terms as would have forced McClellan to open negotiations with the Confederacy. Once you opened negotiations with the Confederacy, after four years of bloodletting like that, Nobody was going to go back to shooting. Once you had an armistice, no one was going to go back to shooting at that point. The pressure, the cry for the end of the war was so great that once you went to negotiations, all the leverage was going to be in the hands of the Confederates, and there was going to be an independent Confederate nation. I really cannot, for the life of me, see any other outcome. And connected with that, 
what is going to happen to those thousands upon thousands of slaves who ran away to the Union lines, who escaped north, the 180,000 who black people who fought in the Union Army and Navy, what was going to happen to them? Do you think for a moment the Confederate negotiators would not have demanded their rendition? I mean, we demanded rendition of slaves at the end of the revolution and at the end of the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. You suppose, do you suppose the Confederate negotiators wouldn't have demanded that, that rendition? And after four years of warfare, do you not suppose that white Northerners wouldn't have agreed to it? Horrible as that is to contemplate. Mothers keeping their sons out of sure. uniform. Exactly. Exactly. Lee's performance as commander of the Army of Northern Virginia is one of the foundations of his place in American and overall military history. How high of a grade do you give him? And did he ultimately lengthen the life of the Confederacy or shorten it? I give him very high grades as a general in the field. And here I'm parting company with Tom Connolly Mm -hmm. and with a few others. But I give him high grades. I have to look at Lee, though. There are three ways in which you want to evaluate a commanding general and talk in terms of greatness or lack thereof. One is the strategic, one is the tactical, and the other is the operational and logistical aspects. Um, Not every great general is the master of all three. And Lee was not the master of all three either. He was a great strategist. Lee saw, as few other Confederates saw, what the overall strategic picture of the war looked like. And he understood this very vital strategic fact. The Confederacy was in no shape to go a long heavyweight bout with the North. It wasn't going to go 15 rounds. If the Confederacy was going to win its independence, it was going to have to score a surprise knockout in the first round or two. And the only way Lee understood that was going to take place was to carry the war onto northern soil. Because there, win a victory there, or even if you don't win a victory, even if you just occupy space for a while and thus demonstrate the impotence of the Lincoln administration, that will cause cause so much political fallout that the Lincoln administration will be compelled to seek peace negotiations. Lee understood that more clearly than almost any other high-ranking Confederate. So strategically, a marvelous thinker. Operational, uh, uh, tactically, tactically, he's less committed in terms of the actual movement of troops and units on the battlefield. He often said that his philosophy of military action was to get his generals to a particular place all together with all the support they needed and then, then let them fight the battle. He does not like to take tactical charge of an immediate fight. The times when he does do that, and he has to do it increasingly in the war, first after he loses Stonewall Jackson, secondly after he loses Longstreet at the Wilderness, Mm -hmm. when he has to assume tactical control, it's very distasteful to him. Thirdly, operationally, this is probably the place where Lee is at his weakest. The Confederate Army, his army, the Army of Northern Virginia, was chronically undersourced. And yet Lee would not challenge the political authorities who were the ones chiefly responsible for that under-resourcing. 
So operationally, Lee probably does not get nearly the high marks he would get in some other departments. But in terms of strategic thinking, he sees very, very clearly what the real dynamic of the war is and what the Confederacy has to do to win it. And in that respect, I think Thomas Connolly was wrong. Strategically or in terms of geography, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman was famously critical of Lee saying to leave Virginia. I think the quote is to leave Virginia was his world and he didn't really care about anything else. Uh, But to your point, and, and please push back. Lee understood, well, we can lose Alabama and we can lose Florida. We can't lose Virginia. So you can be critical of the fact that I'm focusing on my home state. But if we lose Virginia, then we lose Richmond. Then we lose, you know, uh, the ironworks. We lose so many of the, the industrial parts and the political center. So in that sense, is is the criticism of Lee focusing on Virginia, is that criticism misplaced? He is actually much more of a nationalist than people give him credit for. He was thinking very comprehensively in terms of the entire Confederacy all through the war. He is by by no means some kind of uh, monotonous, Virginia-focused Johnny OneNote. The, the curiosity is that people speak of Lee as a Virginian. Ironically, Lee does not live most of his life in Virginia. Uh, Lee, first of all, uh, is born on the northern neck of Virginia, but his family, when he's six, seven years old, moves to Alexandria. And in Alexandria, that was then part of the District of Columbia. It was not part of Virginia then. So he grows up as part of the District of Columbia. Uh, It is his whole context is a national context. He goes to school at West Point, New York. His first assignment is in Georgia. Uh, Subsequent assignments take him to St. Louis. They take him to New York on multiple occasions. He actually spends more time in New York as an army officer than any other spot. So the idea that Lee is somehow uh, wedded and glued to the soil of Virginia greatly misses how very much Lee saw the entire country as being a place that he lived in and operated through. He's, he is not a monotone Virginian. When he spoke about Virginia, what he tended to mean was not the soil of the old dominion, but rather the network of family that he was born into, that network of family, which came to the rescue of the Lees once Light Horse Harry had made himself disappear off the scene. Those relatives of his, the, the other Lees, the Fitzhughes, uh, this whole, the Carters, this whole vast web. I mean, Lee had, believe it or not, 80 first cousins. Uh, when he yeah, <laughs> something when, out of the Andy Griffith yeah, show. Yeah. Uh, when, when Lee lived in Virginia, I've often said that when Lee lived in Virginia, was growing up in Virginia, in Alexandria, Virginia, when, when it was just technically Alexandria district of Columbia, if he'd thrown a brick down the street, he would have hit a relative. So there, <laughs> uh, for him, if, if there is a Virginia that has a pull on him, it is the Virginia of family and family relations rather than 
the soil of Virginia or some romantic, hazy notion of the old dominion. When General Lee knew the game was up in April of 1865, he famously declared, there is nothing left for me to do but go to see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. What do you think was running through Lee's mind as he rode to Appomattox Courthouse that day? And what do you think was going through his mind when he rode away from it? You catch an almost suicidal overtone in that comment. I would rather die a thousand deaths. He made the comment to another staffer. All I would have to do is ride along the front lines and it would be all over. In other words, I wouldn't have to make the decision I know I'm going to have to make. And yet, when he says he has no choice but to go and see General Grant, it's not quite as ironclad as that, because both Grant and Lee had, so to speak, an ace up their sleeve that the other did not know about. Grant was famous as the general who commanded unconditional surrender. Well, Lee understood very clearly what unconditional surrender meant, and especially in his case. If Lee went to meet with Grant and Grant was going to be Mr. Ironpants and demand an unconditional surrender, that could include the imprisonment of his entire army. It could include the trial and execution of his senior officers, because look, they're traitors. I mean, they might call themselves the Army of Northern Virginia and think of themselves as the Army of the Confederate States of America. But the Lincoln administration had never recognized the legal existence of the Confederacy. The Confederacy was. Isn't that why. Isn't that why Lee wore his best uniform? Because he thought he could be (laughs) Grant's prisoner. (laughs) Well, he did say something to that effect, but I think he would have worn a dress uniform no matter what. Um, Lee has to face the possibility that Ulysses Grant is going to be Mr. Unconditional Surrender. And if he does, then everybody at the head of his army could suffer for it. And you could have spectacles like the veterans of the Army of Northern Virginia being paraded through the streets of Washington or the streets of New York, like some kind of Roman triumph. Any, any bets would have been off because there would have been no obligation under terms of unconditional surrender. So Lee has in his mind this anxiety. And if that is what Grant is going to impose, then Lee will ride away because he has an ace up his sleeve. His officers have come to him and said to him, let's not surrender. Let's tell the army, scatter, take your guns, take your weapons, take everything you got, scatter for the hills. We will fight a guerrilla war from one end of the Appalachians to the other. And Lee could have told them to do that. And if Grant had played Mr. Iron Pants, he might well have done so. Lee would prefer not. He'd like to avoid that. But that's a possibility. He has to see. He has to go and meet Grant and find out what Grant wants. Now, Grant also has an anxiety. Grant has been chasing Robert E. Lee for a week since the fall of Richmond. In that week, he has managed to distance himself from all of his supplies. I mean, this is why Grant shows up at the surrender, as is well known, in an ordinary uniform. It's a private's coat with his 
Lieutenant General's shoulder strap sewn on, and his boots and his pants are all muddy and bespattered from riding. Grant speaks about how embarrassed he felt in the presence of Lee showing up in a dress uniform. Why was Grant dressed that way? Because you think that Grant didn't have any other uniform? No, it was because Grant's baggage, Grant's baggage, like the baggage of the rest of his army, was miles, miles, and miles behind. Grant knew, and he admitted this, Grant knew that if he didn't get Lee to surrender at that moment, he would have to break off the pursuit. And if he broke off the pursuit now, oh my goodness, can you imagine what agony would have ensued, how much longer the war might have gone on, how many more battles would have had to have been fought. So Grant comes to Appomattox with an imperative too. That is, he's got to make Lee an offer he can't refuse. Mm. So instead of coming to Appomattox as unconditional surrender Grant, instead, he says, I'll parole everybody in the Army of Northern Virginia. No prison camps, no death march, no humiliations, no trials, court martials, no executions. Everybody gets a parole. They get to go home, and so long as they don't do anything violent and they stay at home, they will not be molested by the United States government. All right, parole, first thing. Officers get to keep their sidearms. You're thinking, well, I don't know, what kind of a big deal is that? Well, that's symbolic. That's symbolic. It's saying we're not going to humiliate, especially the officers of the Army of the Potomac, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia. Third, soldiers can take horses or mules. They can claim them and take them home for their farms and for their planting that spring. And Lee looks at that and says, "That's a, that, basically, you can almost hear him saying this out loud. This is amazing. This is exactly what I wanted. This, this will have the best possible effect. On this will, that's, what he, that's what he meant. This will have the best possible. It's not that it was going to make everybody cheerful. It's that it was going to avoid the consequences of unconditional surrender. So having made Lee that offer, Lee agrees to accept. And Grant, in fact, does him one better. Because Lee informs him, you know, my men have not eaten in, in days. Grant says, we'll supply rations ourselves. 25,000 rations for your army. (laughs) Grant didn't have that. You know, you know where he got those rations from? He had captured Confederate supplies on the trains coming eastward from Lynchburg. So he was really feeding Lee (laughs) with Confederate supplies. But like I said, he's not telling Lee that (laughs) each of them has this ace up the sleeve. And to their great relief, neither of them has to play it. And both Grant and Lee can go away from Appomattox having accomplished what both wanted. For Lee, an honorable end to the war. For Grant, an end to Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia as a threat to the Union. We have just a few more minutes left, and we do want to get to the five questions. We're talking to Professor Alan Gelzo about his new book, his new biography of Robert E. Lee. It is September 2021. And a lot's been happening with generally being in the news or at least his statues and his place in uh, Southern culture of the 21st century. Uh, please take just a minute or two and give us your thoughts on on the removal of the 
Lee statue there in Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, something that would have been utterly unthinkable probably just 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. And uh, I wanted to give you this opportunity as someone who's been a scholar of this time period uh, all your life. I'm at sixes and sevens about the Monument Avenue removal, uh, just as I am about the removal of the Lee statue at Charlottesville, the Lee statue in New Orleans, the Lee statue in Dallas. And one part of me wants to say, and this is this is the Yankee from Yankee land speaking. I do not understand why statues are put up in the first place to Robert E. Lee. I mean, for one thing, he did commit treason. You don't put up statues to those who commit treason. I'm sorry. You just don't do that. But the other part of this understands that monuments and statues themselves change over time. Part of the objection to these Lee statues is that these are somehow the symbol, the living symbol of white supremacy. And I'd probably have to admit that in a number of cases, a number of Lee statues were erected in their day with that kind defiance. of defiance. Yeah, with that kind of malice in, in people's hearts. But monuments age, so to speak. They change. All right, yes, they're granite. You don't think the granite changes, but they do. They change because they're the subject of perception. On the battlefield of Gettysburg, there's over a thousand monuments of various sorts, mostly to Union regiments that fought in the battle. When those monuments were put up, mostly in the 1880s and 1890s, they were put up as memorials because they were put up by the soldiers who had fought in those regiments, and they wanted, you could tell this from the dedication speeches of those monuments, they wanted people to understand the righteousness of the Union cause, and this was a memorial to that righteousness. That generation passes off the scene. Another generation comes. They don't feel the emotional fervor of that so much as the participants. And a generation beyond that, their grandchildren, they come to the Gettysburg battlefield. What do they see? They don't really see memorials. They see monuments. They see a monument. Well, my grandfather fought on the 42nd New York, and that's a monument to them. Then you move a generation or another generation yet beyond that, and people come to the Gettysburg battlefield, and what had started out as a memorial and became a monument really becomes a marker. And people look at that and say, oh, that shows us where the 42nd New York stood in the Battle of Gettysburg. And it doesn't become any more emotional or conflicted than that. A lot of the same thing could be said about monuments of this sort, too. Many people feel that because a monument might have been erected a long time ago with that kind of malice of forethought, that that malice is still alive, that somehow Robert E. Lee gets down off his horse and, and, and leads the Ku Klux Klan to burn crosses on the mountainside in the night. The truth of the matter is that for most people, those monuments have moved from being memorials to monuments to markers. And most people, I think, drove around Monument Avenue without even looking up to see that it was a statue. So I have a certain reluctance to go around pulling down statues simply because we look at them and say an offense was once given by that statue. I think there's something to be said in favor of pulling down statues where there are people living who have suffered harms 
at the hands of the people the statue represents. For instance, when the Hungarian rebels in 1956 tore down that statue of Joseph Stalin in Budapest. That's right. Well, they were talking about someone who had really tortured and tormented them. Or in, Buda- in, in Baghdad, when Iraqis pulled down that statue of Saddam Hussein, they were pulling down the statue of someone at whose hands they had suffered living harms. 150 years on, that's a different question. Is that really the case? It may be, but I would like to hear it discussed on those terms. Otherwise, there is in me as a history person a certain reluctance to indulge iconoclasm. Because iconoclasm, as historians understand it, iconoclasm is one of those deeds that usually 40 or 50 years afterwards, you end up hitting your forehead with your hand and saying, what were we thinking? Why did we do that? At the time of the Reformation, this is according to estimates from the Tate Gallery in in London. At the time of the Protestant Reformation in England, something like 70% of England's religious art was destroyed. And at the time, people felt they had passionate reason for doing so. It represented the threat of the papal antichrist. Uh, It was going to decoy people to hell. It was teaching them untruth. We look back on it and we say, what a loss. The artwork of a nation almost immolated. And I hope we do not sometime in the future look back on this spasm of monument toppling, which is not limited just to Lee. And I hope we do not ask the same question of ourselves. What were we thinking? We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Gelzo, are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? My first job was bagging groceries in a supermarket. It didn't last long, (laughs) but it was my first job. Second question, what was your first concert? My first concert occurred when I was 16 with my friend Ted Lenthe. We journeyed from our suburban Philadelphia home to the Academy of Music in Philadelphia to hear Eugene Ormandy conduct the Philadelphia Orchestra in the Firebird Suite, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and a Beethoven piano concerto played by Van Cliburn. And that was my first concert. Van Cliburn was your first concert. The great story of how he won the first Tchaikovsky prize where they were, the Soviets were so scared to make Khrushchev mad that an American won the first Soviet piano competition in which they were supposed to demonstrate, you know, their superiority that they had to go to Khrushchev and say, is it okay to give it to the American? And Khrushchev says, is he the best? And they're like, yes. And Khrushchev was like, well, give it to him. But they were mortified that they couldn't. I love that story about Van Cliburn, who obviously was brilliant and a genius. Uh, Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? I believe that I'd recommend Bruce Catton, This Hallowed Ground. I still have my 50 cent paperback copy of it. And I considered it a beautiful book when I was nine years old. And I haven't changed my opinion since. One of the great writers of all time. Yes. 
Grant moves south and Grant takes command were the two books that really made me realize what a genius in his own way that Grant was. Yes. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Ford's Theater, April 14th, 1865. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Number five, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? My wife. It's a popular answer. (laughs) And true. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Professor Alan Gelzo, who's written a new book on Robert E. Lee, a biography. I hope you'll pick it up. It is, like all of his writings, insightful and simply just a terrific read. Professor Gelzo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I absolutely had a blast. Thank you, Robert, and thanks and greetings to all of our friends in Indiana. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Veteran Strategies.